Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. We've looked at the plight of Central Asian asylum seekers in Europe on the previous Medjlis Podcast, and we're going to review that topic again as several Tajik asylum seekers have recently been extradited or face possible extradition soon from European countries. But we're also going to look at the plight of many Central Asian migrant laborers, not only in Europe, but in Turkey. Turkey has increasingly become a favored destination for Central Asian citizens looking to find work abroad. But as, in, as is the case in some European countries, in Turkey, there are numerous obstacles and complications Central Asian migrant laborers face. To discuss all this and more, I am joined by Leila Nazgul Saeedbek, a lawyer living in exile in Europe. Leila is the chairwoman of NGO Freedom for Eurasia and a member of the Working Group for Global Treaty to End All Forms of Violence Against Women and Girls. Steve Sverdlo, a rights lawyer who has spent many years focusing on Central Asia and is currently an associate professor at the University of Southern California. And thank you both for joining me. And Leila, let's start the first half of the show with looking at some of the asylum seekers in Europe and what's happened to them just in this year. Uh, Can you take us through some of the cases, please? Hi. Um, Yes, thank you for inviting me and picking this very important topic to discuss um, there have been many cases during the 2022 and 2023 where asylum seekers uh, have been denied asylum in the European Union. Um, and most of the asylum seekers come from Tajikistan. Um, there are now more asylum seekers from Karakal, Pakistan, due to the events of 2022 and the resulting persecution by the Uzbek authorities. We also have now a lot of Pamiris seeking asylum in Europe, and almost everyone has uh, received um, a negative decision on their asylum application. There were also several cases that have been covered by the journalists where the asylum seekers were removed, removed from European Union to Tajikistan and um, have this removal has resulted in them being imprisoned. And so they are now serving a very lengthy prison sentence uh, for the crimes that ha- they haven't committed. It's, um, it's a pretty tragic situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, Steve, um, can you give us a, a, a little more information also on the same topic? Some of the people you know who have been extradited or detained recently in Europe? Yeah, and th- and thanks for having us, uh, Bruce. It's this is really just a shameful episode. I mean, we know that the European Union and the United States, by the way, struggle in terms of upholding their obligations under international law, international refugee law, the Refugee Convention, the European Convention of Fundamental Freedoms and Human Rights, which prohibits a country from returning a person to a place where they face a substantial likelihood of torture including enforced disappearances or politically motivated imprisonment. So these are ironclad, some of the most recognized and well-documented obligations in international law. And yet, as Leila just said, we've seen a number of cases, really shameful ones in the past year or so or longer, where, for example, Germany deported Abdullahi Shamsidin to Tajikistan in January of this year. And this was an individual that had been in the country for years, had applied for asylum, and who was the son of a member of the Islamic Renaissance Party of Tajikistan, which, as listeners of your podcast would know well, has been the subject of of intense persecution. Its members have been the uh, subject of intense persecution by the Tajik authorities for many years now, especially since 2015 or 2016. And despite having 
all the information necessary, loads and loads of information that members of this party are subjected to torture in Tajikistan, and that Tajikistan uses transnational repression, surveillance, harassment. The German authorities denied the asylum claim and put this individual on a plane. He was returned to Tajikistan, and shortly thereafter was really incommunicado for some period of time, and then received a lengthy sentence, which is similar to a a case uh, a few years ago uh, from Austria, which, uh, again, uh, in Leila's backyard, where we have uh, another individual, Chavali Zoda, also associated with IRPT, who received a I believe, 20-year sentence, although it might be even more. So what we've got now is a pattern where Germany, Poland, Austria, even places further afield like France, are deporting, extraditing, forcibly returning people to torture. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt at all that torture is a substantial likelihood, even a certainty in these cases. And so it it really requires uh, extra attention, I think, at many levels the OSCE, the European Union, the UN Human Rights Council, they all should look really closely at this. One, one other case that's happened very recently is a case where Belarus actually extradited an individual who already had refugee status in Germany. His name was Nizomidin Nasridina, a Tajik political ac- activist, who was was returned or returned from Lithuania to Belarus and then was extradited. He was a member of Group 24, yet another opposition group in Tajikistan. And again, we're, we're very concerned for his safety. And in many of these cases, we see the activists are held incommunicado and then tortured. And then, as I said earlier, subjected to these really lengthy sentences. And one other issue that Leila just mentioned is the issue of Pamiris. We've seen hundreds, maybe even more than that, Pamiris fleeing from the persecution in Tajikistan over the government crackdown in Gabao, Um, that really began in earnest uh, again in 2022. And one of the issues that's been raised, in addition to the danger of being forcibly returned, is that many of them are being denied translation services or other services in Germany, for example, where they're seeking asylum. They just don't have the attention they need. And, And I think European countries need to do a better job of understanding the country conditions that asylum seekers come from not just the risk of torture, but the the all around country conditions in places like Tajikistan. So we can maybe we can start with Tajikistan and then move on to some of the others. Can I jump in really quickly here? Please. The thank you. The the interesting thing is as as Steve was speaking, and um, I thought it was important to mention in cases of Pamiris, we have actually filed a request with the German BUMF, the migration service that handles all all of the asylum uh, cases, we have filed a request for translators uh, from the Pamiri languages for these asylum seekers. And also, they were provided with contact information of actually Pamiris who speak fluent German and fluent Pamiri languages that have been in Germany for a decade or, or longer and working in some professional jobs, such as, you know, the their doctors or engineers or you know, something like that. So they have a very high level of German language proficiency. But the people, these people who have offered their help as translators have been receiving a response from the German bump saying that there is no need for their services, that they have no requests for the translators from familiar languages. 
And that is at the same time, that is, this is happening at the same time when we have actually filed at least a dozen requests to, to be provided for the procedure, to be provided a translator like that. Another problem that we have also seen, and this is, you know, these are details of cases, but these are problematic things that we really are tr struggling to, to solve right now, is how these asylum cases are be being handled, not just the Pamiris, but the Tajik persecuted persons, the Karakalpak, the, you know, all, all of the others that come from Central Asia due to persecution. We have cases of people that have suffered from sexual violence, both men and women. Obviously, it is difficult to actually find out that they have been subjected to sexual violence because people don't usually just, you know, volunteer that information. It's difficult for them to speak about it. And when we find out and when, when the authorities find out in the way that they handle these people, they re-traumatize them. They have no respect for the experiences that these people have lived through. The migration officers that are handling these cases, they lack in training of how to treat people like this, you know, not to, to traumatize them, not to victim blame them. And in the decisions, in the denials, how this issue is being discussed of them being raped, they would say incredible things. They would say, well, it happened years ago, so it's not a trauma anymore. How is that not a trauma? Uh, you know, it doesn't matter how many years passed. Can you really get over it? I don't think so. So this lack of understanding of how to approach a victim of sexual violence or any violence is a problem. Another thing is these people come traumatized initially because it's very traumatic to be persecuted. It's very traumatic to realize that you are on Interpol, that you're being haunted by your country's authorities using all of the methods that are at its disposal, and they have a lot of tools to do that. And, you know, you're, you're like an animal that is that, that the authorities are trying to catch and kill anyway in, in any possible, with any possible method. And so the, the authorities really don't really even take care to understand of how traumatized these people are. With the, with the case of this activist in Slovakia, the Amridin Holmoroda that I wanted to mention, he is being accused by Tajik authorities of extremist crimes. One of the accusations is based on supposedly him writing on the internet somewhere that, you know, Tajik authorities should burn in hell, which doesn't really surprise me, right? But what surprises me is how is the response of the Slovak prosecutor that basically said that in Slovakia, these crimes are also considered, you know, very grave crimes. So therefore, he has approved the extradition. But I am sure that in Slovakia or elsewhere in a normal country, when somebody says to somebody to burn in hell, I don't think they are being charged. With, they would get charged with extremist crimes. I really doubt it. It's not a nice thing to say, but you don't go to jail for this. Yeah, so I was going to say, obviously, it's not very pleasant. But on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, that doesn't really violate freedom of speech, per se. Um, exactly. It's, it's an insult, but it's not a crime. You know, okay, and, and Steve, although I want to hear from both of you on this, but I'll start with you, Steve. You know, we, we've dealt with this this issue before, uh, as I mentioned on the Medjlis podcast. And, you know, the, the transnational repression, the, the abuse of the Interpol system, you would think that these governments had been outed by now, right? That it, it would be common knowledge, uh, certainly in Europe, that, that if you got a request from the Tajik government or the Uzbek government or the Turkmen government that, you know, from 
from the first instant, you should think we're not extraditing this citizen unless the evidence is so compelling because the track record of these governments is so bad on, on abusing law enforcement, international law enforcement systems just to go after, you know, essentially personal vendettas as what they're pursuing. Um, so uh, why, you know, this, but it doesn't seem to make a difference. Now, it seems like as many people, if not more, are being extradited back home from, from these European countries uh, now. So um, what, what's what happened here? Disconnect? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think Leila did a good job just now identifying some of the factors. And I mean, w- we know them. Unfortunately, they've been around a while. Some of the, the factors that that contribute to European nations uh, not upholding their obligations. Of course, Islamophobia. That's long been part of this equation in terms of just the xenophobia, Islamophobia. Uh, or Racism. we can say just... Uh, yeah, racism, absolutely. I think, though, you know, one other issue here that we keep seeing cropping up in cases, for example, in Abdullah Shamsidin's case, where the German administrative court actually said um, in January, I quote, it is not significantly likely that he would be exposed to an exceptional situation within the meaning of Article 3, that's the, the, the article that deals with torture, in the event of a return to his country due to his particular individual situation. Now, this individual was the son of Shamsidin Said, of a well-known member of the IRPT, as I said, which is a high-profile political target of Tajikistan. So why is it that the German court would not understand the structure of family or the way repression, as you said, Bruce, is transnational? It affects whole families. It harasses entire extended families. We know that relatives are back in, in Tajikistan, or, or later we'll talk about Turkmenistan, how they are called in, forced to record videos against their, their relatives who are quote-unquote political. And so one problem, I think, is, is European courts not understanding families in Central Asia, the nature of repression in Central Asia. Also, as you said a few moments ago, also this really vague and, and, and overbroad understanding of extremism, which ties in uh, with the Islamophobia and racism. And and finally, I'd say that, you know, Central Asians, they simply don't have a political constituency, political capital, for lack of a better word, in European jurisdictions to be able to lobby their interests effectively. That's why you know, I've spoken with a number of Tajiks, for example, who for several years now have been trying to create new organizations. And, and of course, Leila's organization is doing a great job with this too, but organizations that are devoted to not just integrating asylum seekers into places like Austria or Poland, but also lobbying their political interests and in preventing the forced return. So you have a whole host of factors that interact with one, one another that make it easy for European countries to do this, despite, I mean, Bruce, as long as I can remember, maybe going back 15 years or even longer, we have dozens, maybe more than 100 cases of European Convention, European Court of Human Rights uh, precedent directing countries not to return asylum seekers. I remember back in 2013 when Norway had to completely stop all returns of all Uzbeks to Uzbekistan because of systematic torture and detention, people being paraded on TV, said, you know, saying that they were gay and that they were extremists at the same time, absurd things. And yet they don't seem to learn their lessons. And I think COVID finally was another factor, this sort of you know, a, uh, it was a moment when I think a lot of nations were allowed to get away with a lot of things that normally they wouldn't do. And that definitely applied to refugees and asylum seekers as well. Okay, thanks. Uh, Lila, back to you, because now I'm real curious. You, you know, you said that, in, for instance, in the, in the case of the Pamiris, there are people uh, who are who are 
fluent in German, who are Pomeri, who are willing to help out with these kind of cases. There's a, you know, a, a number of many experts in Europe that could help out if the, these governments could reach out to them or their judicial systems, their justice system, the, the law enforcement system, to, who could ask, you are one. Uh, Steve is another. Uh, so there's there's many people that can consult on this thing. What what happens with the process here? Is it so internalized that they don't, you know, they're just kind of follow, going by the book, so to speak? You know, I, this is a good, really good question. I don't know why they don't reach out. I really don't know why they don't request information or assistance from the experts in the field or the NGOs that work on these countries and these issues, which I think would be very important. The the only thing that I see right now in their efforts, or their only effort actually, is to expel these people using any means available. Like they're not even looking at the possibilities of establishing the truth, which is you know which is the most important thing here, right? Is to establish the truth and to establish whether or not the person is truly persecuted. And if that person, and, you know, to find every possible factor that points to the fact that, you know, to, to support the asylum seekers story, they are doing instead the opposite. They are trying to find every possible way to uh, deny that story, to kind of, you know, attack every argument that the asylum seeker provides. And um, an example here is is this case out of Germany, the Abdullah Shamsuddin situation, where he has said to the court and to the authorities that he is the son of Shamsuddin, who is um, a prominent uh, member and actually one of the leaders of IRPT, to which the authorities have said, we don't really believe that you are his son. So he goes, and with the help of you know, NGOs and, and activists that were supporting him, he does, and these, this was happening in the last days just before his deportation. He does a DNA test. And so the, the DNA results come out. We file these DNA results with the authorities and they come up with a, with a statement, with a decision where they say, yeah, okay, this is a DNA test. We see it, but we were not in control of the procedure. So we are not going to accept it. Which, is, which I think is unacceptable. If the court was in doubt of the process in, in which that DNA test was con- conducted, it was conducted by, by a lab in Germany. But anyway, if they had doubts, they could have issued their own decision and put their court official in control of the process to make sure that you know they received the proper DNA results to establish whether or not he was the son of that IRPT leader. It was simple enough, really, um, but they didn't do it. And even, you know, the interesting thing is also, even if we count on the European Court for Human Rights decision to stop the removal, to prevent the removal, and uh, to eventually kind of fight for this asylum seeker to remain in the safe country and receive his asylum status, the problem is of the European country is not respecting the decision of the European Court, because this is what happened with Sorbonne, the asylum seeker from Poland. There was a Rule 39 issued by the European Court for Human Rights preventing, uh, prohibiting his removal from Poland. But Poland did not, decided not to respect the decision. They have tried uh, to put him on a commercial flight. He threw a tantrum in, in, the, in the airplane, and obviously the pilot said he's not taking a passenger on board who is not there voluntarily. Which is, which is exactly, you know, the right decision 
to make on the part of the pilot. So they decided not to go through this hassle with an airport and a commercial flight. They put that asylum seeker on a military plane and flew him from Poland to Dushanbe in violation of the European court's decision. Well, how would, I mean, I, I don't even know how to, how to defend these people, to be honest with you. It's very frustrating if the European countries aren't respecting their own conventions and laws and, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, we're get, getting close to the halfway point of the show, but before I leave this topic, I was hoping, Lila, you could mention, you could talk a little bit more about the Karakalpaks who are arriving. We've done Karakalpaks on the program before. I'm personally curious. Can you give us uh, any idea of what their situation is, roughly how many of them there are, uh, where they've been going? Well, but not specifically where they've been going, but uh, generally in Europe, East, Central, West. Yeah, we have so far four, I believe, four asylum cases of Karakalpaks in Europe. And they are in Poland, in, um, in England, they're in, two, in, in these two uh, countries. The situation of Karakalpaks in Poland is quite bad. Uh, the situation of any asylum seekers from Central Asia in Poland is quite bad, actually. Yeah, some of them are survivors of torture, and some of them are survivors of sexual violence. And um, yeah, we still have to see how the process will look like in the UK. The process in the in Poland looks really bad. We are doing everything possible to um, to secure their their safety there and somehow you know that they have a chance at, at asylum there but i'm not sure i'm not sure how that is going to work what we also have tried to do is we have tried to because there is lack of resources and because we don't th- there's a difficulty of of actually accessing lawyers the asylum lawyers in europe also yeah. pro bono lawyers is very difficult to access and most of these asylum seekers obviously don't have you know, money to to pay for the private lawyers themselves. Uh, we have tried to reach out to other colleagues. The problem with that, though, is that one of the one of the NGOs that was wonderful is is a wonderful NGO that has um, started helping us with these asylum cases and um, with the European Court for Human Rights uh, submissions because there's so many of them. They have pulled back because. They have realized that the cases we have shared with them are cases of people being charged with extremist crimes. And when we try to explain to them, they're like, give us, you know, good cases. We can't do terrorism and extremism. (laughs) And I'm like, we don't have any other. We really don't. And they're like, how do you, how do you not have other, other cases? And this is the reality. We don't have asylum seekers that are not persecuted through being charged with extremist crimes we either have them or we have their family members and nobody wants to do these cases because i don't know because of what because of possible damage to reputation maybe because they think it's true i don't know maybe and uh, also there is a there is a difficulty that we have faced with these extremist charges also that applies to everybody the pamiris the tajiks uzbeks karakalpaks and everybody else fleeing, fleeing uh, Central Asia. Somehow, they are being inserted into this SIS, I think it's called Schengen Information System, as That's danger right. to pub. They're, they're being inserted into that database as public threat. And I believe that that happens when these people are being uh, recorded by Interpol and Europol, and they probably somehow end up in that system automatically. But 
What we have not been able to understand is how an asylum seeker that appeared in Poland has never been anywhere else in Europe somehow is found undesirable in the SIS system by Germany and France, for example, where he never visited. That is something that we have not been able to figure out. But that plays a significant uh, negative role in their asylum cases as well, because the asylum authorities then say we can't really give him asylum because he is a public threat in that SIS system. And there is no way to remove him from that system. We don't know how we don't know what to do. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, we have reached the midway point. So um, we're talking with uh, Steve Sardlow, uh, who is a, a currently an associate professor of, of human rights at the University of Southern California and Lila Nazgul Saitbek, a lawyer uh, who's currently living in exile in Europe, and she's the chairwoman of the NGO Freedom for Eurasia. Uh, and our co- topic today is the Central Asia asylum seekers and migrant laborers in Europe, but but also in Turkey, Turkey, and that's going to be the second part of the, sh- the program. Now, um, Steve and Lila, your organizations have both uh, co-authored um, a report that was uh, recently given to the UN um, Human Rights Commission. Could you talk a little bit about that, please, for us? Because this is this is about Turkey and migrant labor, specifically Turkmen, I think, that are, are working in Turkey at the moment. Um, Steve, could you start us out? Well, thanks, Bruce, for for profiling this issue. And um, you know, it's it's a it's a drastic humanitarian crisis that Turkmen are facing in Turkey. Official estimates say, according to Turkish official information, there's officially 213,000 Turkmens living in Turkey, but unofficially that figure is probably four to five times higher. And, you know, back in 2007, Turkey eased restrictions, you know, in line with its policy of easing restrictions for visas for all the Turkic countries and and the policy of, uh, you know, getting closer with the Central Asian nations, Turkey had had created a 30-day visa-free regime which allowed Turkmens to pretty easily travel back and forth between Turkmenistan and Turkey. This is a major source of really important income for migrants and more re- in more recent years became really a sort of a refuge in terms of for dissidents and political protests and ideology. But in May, Ashgabat asked in May 2022, Ashgabat appeals to Ankara and says, we want to do away with this. Let's get rid of the visa free regime, which Bruce, I don't, I haven't, I can't say this for certain, but it may be the only case that I know of where a country is asking another country to create visa restrictions, not the other way around. I mean, it's absolutely unprecedented. And they say, we want you to restrict Turkmen's from being able to reside and and to freely travel and so therefore please put visas back into place so take away the 30-day visa free regime which erdogan then signs in september 2022 which really enacts and cements uh this crisis that had already been brewing at least since again covid which meant that turkmen's all of a sudden would be restricted they would have to apply for visas in turkmenistan to get to turkey and, you know, in a way, more profoundly, the Turkmen's that are inside Turkey, their passports, as they expire, the consulate offices uh, of Turkmenistan's embassies in Turkey stopped renewing, stopped updating passports for Turkmen's, essentially rendering them de facto hostages in Turkey. 
Um, this is something that was happening during COVID as well, but stepped up and, and, and really, again, after the agreement was signed in September 22, became really acute, which is that Turkmen simply can't get their passports, like any other the representatives of every other nation, let's say Uzbeks in Turkey, they can go to their consulate, they can get their passport renewed, their biometric passport. Turkmen's can't do that. And so therefore, they must travel back to Turkmenistan. It's all part of a policy that Ashgabat has implemented in order to force Turkmen's back into the country to keep them on a tight leash, especially those who who share critical views of the government, but also just migrants who, who, who need to earn a living. So it forces them to go back to Turkmenistan to get their passports. And one thing that Turkmen's, uh, several of the political activists in Turkey started protesting this. And one of, one of the issues that they were actually, is pretty remarkable. Turkmen's were, the story of Turkmen activism in Turkey is something that I got to know very, very well when I took this recent mission uh, last month to Turkey to meet with Turkmen activists and Turkmen migrants in Turkey for the Human Rights Advocacy Group uh, as part of the joint report that we did with Layla's organization. And, you know, it, it was interesting that because of their persistent protests since 2020, 2021, we, I know, Bruce, you've covered some of these really brave activists like Dorsultan Taganova, but they were able to essentially pressure the Turkmen embassy and consulate to at least insert what we call a kladish or an insert into the passports that extend the validity of that passport to allow them to do certain things in Turkey, like obtain residency. But the problem is, is that that extension of the validity only applies inside Turkey. So it means that Turkmen's who want to travel further outside of Turkey into Europe, let's say, as we've just been discussing, cannot do that. It's not recognized by any other country. You really need, in this day and age, you really need a passport. You need a valid passport to freely move. So these are the most fundamental rights, freedom of movement, but you know, beyond that, one of the there are many, many related issues, as you can imagine, that flow from not having a passport. And that's what activists were telling me when I was in Turkey: that um, when you don't have a passport, your children can't go to school. We have thousands of children that in in Turkey, Turkmen children, that have been unable to to get an education. I was told horrific stories, Bruce, of women who's who have been raped, who are afraid to go to the police stations because they're afraid to be deported from Turkey back to Turkmenistan. And they know what awaits them if they get sent back to Turkmenistan. And unfortunately, we've also seen in the last several months uh, a lot of reports of people going missing in Turkey. So we were just talking about forced returns from Europe. Well, we have the same thing happening in Turkey. There's been raids on Turkmen migrants and Turkmen activists, several people going to deportation centers, held in deportation centers. I learned of a case, um, which I don't know if you, you, you guys are aware of this one, Farhad Farhad or Farhad Mehman Kuliev has gone missing for the last two months. He's a, a Turkmen activist in Turkey, and colleagues believe that he's in there either back in Turkmenistan or maybe still in a deportation center. There's an organization called Hakukuk Dayanch, a human rights group, a Turkmen human rights group in Turkey that has been documenting these cases. And, you know, they told me of just all these horrible things that flow from not having a passport. Obviously, you can't work. You're scared of the police. You can't get medical care. You can't get education. You can't get any other documents. You can't move into Europe. So it, it creates a real crisis. And as I said, I think Turkmen's may make up the third largest group of migrants in Turkey. It's after Syrians. So this is huge. We're talking about maybe a million people, but at the very least, hundreds of thousands of people in this situation. 
Oh, thank you. Uh, Lila, what can you add to this? Um, you know, and, and also let me mention that you would think that given the dire state of Turkmenistan's economy, uh, you know, that the Turkmenistan, the government might consider the, that it's in a similar situation to Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, say, where they send, you know, also hundreds of thousands of migrant laborers to Russia. And it's kind of a lifeline for the economy back home. But Turkmenistan doesn't seem to look at it like that. I don't I don't really think that the regime of Turkmenistan ever cared about the, the you know, what is better for the people and the general economy of the country so that people somehow have, you know, a way to survive. I, I think that's the last thing that the regime is is uh, is thinking about. For them, it, it, you know, people that are outside of Turkmenistan are always a threat because they, you know, they get this access to to information and a possibility to exchange information and possibility to write something on social media and to share their opinions and maybe, you know, even unite with their, you know, ideas and uh, goals and somehow create some sort of diasporas. This is, um, this is a threat to the regime. So um, I think the only thing that regime is trying to do is to keep them inside the country as much as possible. Doesn't matter if they die of hunger or they they die of illnesses that are treatable but because of the lack of medicine or lack of medical help it it really doesn't matter for them as long as they can keep robbing the country for their own benefit that's yeah that's pretty much the only goal that the regime has is uh, is enriching itself uh-huh, thanks um, your report also talks about harassment of turkmen citizens in turkey Okay, can you speak a little bit about that, Steve? You can start if you want. Sure. I mean, you know, Bruce, it's a, it's in a way. I was saying this is a tragic story, but it's also really amazing to see the bravery and the creativity of several of the Turkmen activists that that I met and that have been active in the movement. And again, it's it's interesting looking back to twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one in the depths of COVID. One of the things that really pushed uh, Turkmen activists to the brink was that flights were entirely stopped. And as we remember, you know, Turkmenistan used COVID-19 as a pretext to entirely stop all flights and, and again, control movement to an extreme extent, unlike really any almost any other country. And one of the problems was that Turkmens who were dying of COVID, their bodies couldn't even be repatriated to Turkmenistan. And you had a feeling among the Turkmen diaspora in Turkey that their government had, you know, they knew that that the government was abusive and had an abysmal record. But I think COVID really, in a way, brought it into focus even more for your everyday sort of bread and butter economic issues. Even, as I said, not being able to even repatriate, you know, a corpse um, for burial. It was just so extreme, the lack of care, as Layla just said, the total disregard for their citizens, that Turkmen started organizing, and they started protesting, and they started going to the consulate, and they and they delivered a note to Berdim Muhammadov, and several activists, if you remember this case in in Istanbul, went to the consulate. They delivered um, a note. They entered the premises of the of the consulate, and all of a sudden, uh, they were surrounded by. I was just told this story when I when I was in um, Istanbul last week. I got a chance to hear this again um, in vivid detail, how they were surrounded by people in masks, beaten to a pulp. There was even a child who got injured. 
and again, among this group, there were not, not just men, but women, a courageous activist that, that we've heard of now for a few years, Dorsultan Taganova, who sort of became the face of this movement. Um, she's been harassed relentlessly. As I said, the troubling part is Turkish authorities are complicit in raiding Turkmen communities. Um, we saw Turkish migration authorities or maybe Turkmenistan officials together with Turkish authorities delivering some bouquet of flowers to someone's address with stuff in the bouquet and then using that as a pretext to raid the apartment, arrest the individual, take him to a deportation center. Um, and I heard this climate, I, I sensed this climate of fear. I saw it while I was there. It was. It, it prevented me from being able to personally meet with several of the people I wanted to. Another aspect is that the Turkish authorities have, for people that request asylum, we were just talking about, you know, under UN procedures, many of them are forced to relocate deep into the interior of Turkey. And, and of course, Turkish officials say, well, that's because we have lots of Syrians and, and a huge demand. It's not for any political reasons. But what it has meant is that some of the more outspoken activists, like a man named Atmurat Sabharov, who was among that list, uh, that group of people that delivered the letter to Berdi Muhammadov and was beaten, um, has been sent you know, to a city called Kayseri, really far, Cappadocia, you know, from Istanbul or from Ankara. So it makes it hard for Turkmens to pursue their peaceful activism. But uh, again, despite that, we've seen groups emerge. Uh, also, I should mention, um, I didn't before, the Turkmenistan Helsinki Foundation, based in Bulgaria, has really led on this research, and they've been filing cases in Turkish court. So I, I'm very concerned for the Turkmen activists. As I said, we have one man that's just simply disappeared, uh, Mehman Kuliev. We also know, Bruce, the case of Amruzak uh, Omar Kuliev. He was a young man who, back in 2018, organized a group of Turkmen students that wanted to reform politics in Turkmenistan. He got a call from representatives of the Turkmenistan consulate, and they said, we really like your ideas. Why don't you come back to Turkmenistan? We'll give you a platform. We want to hear about your ideas for political reform. He agrees to this. He's just a young man. He gets on that plane. He goes back. He gets a 20-year sentence. He disappears. And we, we don't exactly know where he is. He appears on a video later. And Turkmen authorities have said that you know he was serving time in the army. Now they say he's at home. But all we know is that he appeared sort of drugged and disoriented on this video that they showed him on. And you know we don't have to look hard to, to remember that there are over 165 disappearances, enforced disappearances, people whose acknowledgement, whose, whose whereabouts are not acknowledged by the government in Turkmenistan. It's one of the largest cases in the world of enforced disappearances. And so this is absolutely unforgivable that Turkey would be doing this with its Turkmen population. It has to stop. Okay, uh, thank you. And Lila, I want you to comment on this too, but uh, we're, because we're getting close, kind of close to the end. Um, so, but you can also make any last last comments that you want. But but I'm kind of curious, you know, Turkey has a strange relationship with Turkmenistan, like everybody has a strange relationship with Turkmenistan, right? But sometimes Turkey needs to be really good friends with Turkmenistan. When they're talking about connectivity, middle corridor, trade routes, shipping gas to Europe and stuff, then all of a sudden Turkey sees sees an advantage with Turkmenistan and, and relations get much warmer. And then there's times when Turkmenistan is resistant, right? That they, they say they're not interested in shipping gas anywhere and they're not going to cooperate. They're not going to join the organization of Turkic states right away. And, and then Ankara is much harsher on Turkmenistan. Does that play out on the Turkmen diaspora in Turkey? Do you ever see that where they're, they're given a little bit more 
a little bit more leeway, so to speak, uh, a little more room to maneuver in when relations are bad between the Turkish government and Turkmen government. Uh, and then, and then they're more, it's more constricted their activities when Turkey and when Ankara and, and Ashgabat are on good speaking terms and trying to come up with some new cooperation, form of cooperation. Well, with asylum cases and asylum seekers that we monitor in Turkey, I really don't see any difference where politics would actually influence their procedures. Their procedures are, in in my view, are consistently difficult and bad. Um, you know, the reason uh, one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is because you remember they had the meeting of the Azerbaijani, Turkish, and, and Turkmen presidents uh, at the end of last year. And uh, uh, Turkey had been pushing this meeting is going to be this was going to be a big breakthrough and they were going to start shipping Turkmen gas to Europe right at a time, especially when Europe was really worried about that. And then the Turkmen wouldn't commit to it. Serdar, uh, President Serdar Berdimukhamedov said he wasn't you know, interested in shipping grass across from, uh, you know, to Europe through Turkey. And, and all of a sudden Erdogan said that Steve had mentioned a while ago that that Turkmenistan had requested and received extra visa restrictions on its citizens in Turkey. And Erdogan all of a sudden turned around after this meeting in, in Ashgabat and said, you know, maybe maybe that's too harsh and maybe we should lift those. You know, so that's kind of why I'm wondering if there's, you know, if, if the political ties between the two countries have any influence on the situation with Turkmen diaspora in Turkey. Well, in some way, yeah, of course. Um, when, when Turkey decides to... It was somehow, you know, pull these strings and uh, and tell the to, to Afghanistan that they will not be as cooperative and going after the in going after the the activists that the Turkmenistan is requesting. Obviously, yes, but um, in general, I don't think it really changes the 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 situation for the asylum seekers or migrants in in you know in a massive way. I don't think so. Maybe in small ways, perhaps but not significantly. Okay, well, that's fine. Um, so I, I guess it's time for, for last comments. Lila, you want to start? And then we'll let Steve have the last word today. Let's start with Steve, okay. and I'll jump in. We'll start with Steve, and then you can have the last word. Uh, so, Steve, go ahead. Well, just to start, Bruce, that a future podcast should probably deal with uh, the issue of the United States and migration, because we've got droves of Central Asians coming up through the Mexico-U.S. border. That's for another conversation. You know, I think in terms of a last thought on Europe, it's, as I said, I think the word is shame or shameful in terms of what Germany, Austria, France, Poland, and uh, other countries have been doing. And I think there's clear jurisprudence on this issue. Um, there's clear expertise. You know, Layla's organization has, is, is the first place to go to, to get assistance on these asylum cases. And it's just absolutely unforgivable. I think it needs to, to change immediately. And, and a number, the good news, on, on, I think, on that front is that we've got NGOs like the Helsinki Foundation for Human Rights in Warsaw and many other organizations that are ready to step in. Although, as Layla said, the extremism issue is, is, is something that deters a lot of rights activists and lawyers from helping. So clearly, we need more education. We need um, Central Asians to be treated humanely. Uh, the issue of racism has to be dealt with head on, the issue of Islamophobia. And turning to Turkey, you know, that in a way is, is a lesser known and, and much larger I issue in the sense of the, just the sheer number of people that are affected right now. I would say that, you know, we're talking about the disenfranchisement 
And the statelessness, the effective statelessness of hundreds of thousands of people now in Turkey. I was just absolutely devastated. I was absolutely affected by what I saw in, in Turkey recently. And I, I would say this, Turkmenistan needs to cease its harassment, its its transnational repression of Turkmen activists in Turkey. We need to support the civil society there. For all of those of us that are that are interested in changing the trajectory of Turkmenistan's abysmal situation, I think the first place to look is the situation in Turkey in terms of supporting the, the courageous activists that I met and stopping this. And of course, Turkey should do better. It, 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 it's again talking about trying to enter the European Union again, well, if it's going to do that, well, we absolutely have to turn our attention to the wholesale disenfranchisement of this huge community, the third largest community of migrants in Turkey. And thanks thanks for covering this, Bruce. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Lila, the last word goes to you. Yeah, I want to, to add that the European Union should start looking at these Central Asian authorities in a realistic way. These are not states in a normal sense. These are organized criminal organizations. These are not just state officials. These are people that are committing crimes. They are committing crimes against humanity. They are committing genocide. And they are committing these crimes in order to defend their wealth and defend the sources of their wealth, which is their countries. They're getting rich over the fat of the land. And in order to to keep that, they use every possible way to suppress their own populations. So I think the lack of understanding of how criminal those authorities in Central Asia are is a part of the problem. And the European authorities should also put some effort into starting to see the Central Asian asylum seekers as humans, because so far. I have seen that they have been dehumanized, and it, my heart actually breaks when I see the huge difference with which they are in treatment between the asylum seekers from Belarus and Ukraine and the Central Asian asylum seekers. They're two different, two different cases. Can't, can't compare them. And, you know, if I haven't seen these examples of how the asylum seekers from Belarus and Ukraine have been welcomed in Europe. I would not have been able to actually realize that, you know, such welcome was possible. So I know it's possible. It's just not available to us. It's not available to Central Asians. That's the truth of it. So we need to, we need to somehow change the narrative in the European Union. We need to, to work on European Union countries to understand better of how to read those papers that they receive with the extradition requests and how to understand the stories that the asylum seekers tell them it's, and not victim blame, not, you know, not shame them for what they're telling them and not necessarily uh, treat them as liars initially. You know, give them some credit, some, some, some credit, some trust and treat them a little with respect, with respect, not, not as people who are trying to come and uh, take advantage of the European systems and, uh, and uh, you know, that they're here for economic purposes. Nobody leaves their home. Nobody leaves their home voluntarily. Not even if they live in Nokos somewhere or in some village 
you know, far away in uh, in the Pamirs. Nobody wants to leave their home. They're here not because they want to take advantage of, of Europe and European systems. They're seeking safety. They're seeking help. And um, I, I hope European Union is um, is capable of, you know, pulling itself, itself together and, and solving this issue somehow. Thank you. Yeah, excellent comments to end the program. And th- so thank you. Uh, thank you, Leila, and thank you, Steve. And a reminder, you can find the recent report from the USC, University of Southern California Human Rights Advocacy Group and Freedom for Eurasia at freedomeurasia.org. Uh, and a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.